0: We all have the potential to lead stress-free lives. We know that it's possible because we have evidence and training. This quote from my guest this week, Professor Joe Clark. Jo was a forensic psychologist and worked in the prison system for 23 years. In this really fascinating episode, she shares her insights into human behavior, both for adults and children, how we can thrive as teachers and leaders in high-risk jobs, and she shares a wonderful philosophy that kids do well if they can, not if they want to. I think you're really going to enjoy this wide ranging conversation with Professor Joe Clark. Welcome to The Pursuit of Wellbeing. My name is Maria Brosnan, and I'm an educational well-being specialist and your host for this show. Here on the podcast, I'll be speaking with leading figures in education about the issues affecting schools and teachers today. We'll share tools and practical ideas to help you thrive, not just survive, as an educator. My guest today is Professor Jo Clark, founder and director of Petros, a not-for-profit company dedicated to helping people of all ages live more resilient, balanced and productive lives. Jo's background is absolutely fascinating. She's a forensic psychologist and worked in the criminal justice system for 23 years. Having worked in this system with criminal justice staff, she was aware of the questions around surviving and thriving in roles that often involve exposure to potential trauma. So Jo undertook her PhD in this area in 2004. Since then, Jo's been working with organizations and individuals, including children with challenging and disruptive behaviors, to apply research evidence to enhance psychological well-being. A mum of a now adult daughter and foster carer of teenagers, Joe also has a menagerie of animals, including a registered therapy dog and two horses in training to assist in interventions with children. Joe, welcome to the podcast. (laughs) Hi, thank you so much for that introduction. (laughs) It's a pleasure. Gosh, we've got so much to talk about. But I think, Joe, this podcast is for educators, so teachers and leaders listening to this. But I think we would all love to hear about your time in prison and the parallels from the work that you did there and how that relates to the work that you're currently doing with Petros.
1: Well, where do you start? I kind of fell into a job in criminal justice. It wasn't an intention. So after graduating in in human psychology at Aston in Birmingham, I I think like most graduates, even 30-something years ago, just fumbled around for a job and um, I ended up actually getting a job with the probation service to start with which involves supervising offenders in the community who'd been serviced to community sem- service orders. There had been an advertisement for prison psychologists at that time and I was 23 and I just thought oh I'm too young to go into a prison I think I'd be terrified but after a couple of years of working with offenders in the community wanted to do more and thought I want to do more than just supervise and I want to use my psychology degree so I applied and was fortunate to get appointed in 1990 in the last century. (laughs) Um, I was asked to go to Albany prison on the Isle of Wight having said I didn't want to go to the Isle of Wight I'm sure people can relate to this (laughs) just ending up doing what's required. And I was told that Albany was going to become a centre of excellence in the treatment of sex offenders. And I was really, really resistant. And I said, you know, I really don't want to work with sex offenders. I think that would just do my head in. Mm. Um, But you don't kind of get a choice about who you work with. (laughs) And I was after resisting the, the pressure for some time, actually ended up training to facilitate treatment programmes and bizarrely found that I loved that work. It was very, very difficult, phenomenally challenging, but to feel that you were making a difference, that you were working with people to reduce their risk of creating more victims, to seeing people change and being able to change in the face of behavior that is you know, really shameful. People don't want to talk about that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it was really, really rewarding. And I got so involved that I ended up starting training other people and supervising and managing treatment programs. But I had always been very, very aware of the impact on me. And in fact, was fine most of the time. But then there are a couple of occasions when things in my life outside of work paralleled what was happening in work. And at those times, I really felt a shift in my my own well-being and didn't really know what to do about that um wasn't sure if, if I should talk to somebody or if I should be doing change jobs or move prisons or but anyway that I, I carried on and I was okay but two of my colleagues around the mid-1990s actually took the prison service to court for psychiatric injury and although mm-hmm. I hadn't worked directly with them we were doing the same work so That raised so many questions for me about if it was simply the content of the work, which would make sense, you know, people would understand that. If it was just the content of the work, surely all of us would be troubled all of the time. So there must be more to it than that. It must be more than just the nature of the offending. Um, By this time, I'd moved to Brixton in London and we'd set up a unit for really, really high risk life sentence prisoners who, by definition, have taken someone else's life. And um, around, well, in 1998, I had my daughter. So I was very, very clear that I couldn't carry on doing that work whilst being a mum. And and I was also a single mum. So I managed to get a job at prison service headquarters, which I absolutely loved. And from there, was given the opportunity to take a career break and do my PhD and that gave me that opportunity to really think about the impact on people of what is potentially phenomenally traumatic work and look at how some people thrive and others don't or that some of us thrive for most of the time but then have periods of wobbling Mm. and when I came back into the prison service in 2004 I was appointed to a prison but had a phenomenally forward-thinking area manager who saw the potential of the PhD findings, saw some of the risks in the high security prison estate and appointed me as well-being advisor, which is a job I did for about five years. And I will be forever grateful to him for this opportunity to take all these research findings and apply them to really enhance the capacity of staff to thrive in really difficult work. So, so, I have hundreds of stories from <laughs> prison, hundreds of them. Um, I I know, and I know that people who are listening, we will have experienced really, really difficult things. We'll have seen difficult things. We'll have heard difficult things. And that stuff stays with you. You can't unknow these things once they've happened. For me, so much of how we manage that on a personal level is to do with, almost with how it's filed away. There's lots of neuropsychology involved in this. You know, how do we file it? How do we put it away neatly and not shove it in a cupboard? Which I think is a very common response to experiencing emotional and psychological difficulty. It's because we think we're going mad. We, we tend to, to deny it or avoid it and shove it away. And it's got to come out sometime. <laughs> so probably much more healthy if we can put it away neatly. Um, that was one of the bits of the findings in my research, but I can talk to you a lot more about that if you'd like. But you...
0: <laughs> I, I think just to finish that point then, how do you advise people then to park those emotionally or psychologically challenging or difficult experiences? How do you process them neatly? That's
1: such an important question. And I, I think it's um, courageously and honestly, because we like to think, I think particularly in those sorts of jobs, and I know there are elements in teaching where this is the same, we do these jobs because we think we can do it. And so when we find we can't, for whatever reason, it can be, it can really unbalance us. And we get shifted, I think, sometimes from our core identity. So if you like believe you're a coper, and then suddenly you find you're not coping, Mm. um, Sometimes our responses to those aren't particularly adaptive or helpful. So people I've worked with who um, have been really quite damaged often will resort to uh, withdrawal, um, getting really moody with people at home. Um, alcohol is very common. Getting ill Not that people choose to do that, but because our immune system is compromised when we get very stressed, so people become very poorly, we carry this burden for a really long time without actually looking at it and saying, do you know what, what I'm feeling is completely normal in this set of abnormal circumstances. But for me, one of the key issues is that we're never trained in that, we're never prepared for that. And I think when we start looking at organisational, Um, duties of care I was going to use the word obligation and that's a strong word but I actually do think it's an organizational obligation if you know that the work you're asking people to do exposes them to trauma then the organization does have an obligation to prepare people for that and to train them and we know that in some enlightened organizations where they have introduced what we call trauma preparedness training and resilience training that those staff who, who receive that training are much more robust um much more able to respond well to trauma far less likely to go off sick more in, more likely to get involved in incidents but also more likely to manage them very well so mm. so there are massive advantages to preparing people so I think you know if anyone's listening who is really suffering this is not an issue of blame or giving you know saying it's all personal responsibility because we don't know how to look after ourselves very often it isn't something that we're trained in. We're trained how to look after our physical cells, but we're not trained in how to look after our psychological cells. You know, I could give you 20 tips on how to stay physically well around what you eat and exercise and diet and cleaning your teeth and regularly, um, you know, having your eyes tested, all those things. But what what do we know about looking after our psychological cells? And actually, that starts for me, it actually does start with your physical self, you need to be physically well, so you need to eat well, eat healthily, exercise, um, Mm -hmm. try and have really healthy sleep routines, Mm -hmm. you know, get all of those things in place. But then understand if you can or get training or read about what emotion is for, because emotion is essential. It's a signal to act, all emotion is a signal to act, whether it's sadness or or anger, or happiness, or joy, it's all emotions tell us something. And if we are able to recognize that we're feeling something, because something is going on around us that we may need to attend to, then we're much more empowered to respond well. Rather than go, oh, I hate feeling angry or why am I feeling so depressed or what what am I so anxious about? I tell you what I'm gonna have some wine tonight, and that'll solve the problem because of course it won't.
0: Yeah, I love that definition of that emotion is a signal to act. And giving ourselves just a little bit of time to sit with our emotions. Mm. when we're feeling angry or sad or, Grieving, whatever it is, and to whatever level of intensity that is, if we just give ourselves some time to sit with that and allow ourselves to feel it, then that will move through us. Mm. Emotions are signals, they tell us something, but then they, they they move. They're not designed to sit in our nervous systems and in our bodies for years on end, you know, once we know how to do that, and then we can emotionally regulate, I often say that we have an inner battery. And, you know, we wake up in the morning with a certain amount of charge in our battery, and we move through the day. And by the end of the day, you know, we need to recharge, i.e. we need to sleep. But I think one of the biggest drains on our battery are our emotions, especially if they're we can't express them, or we can't, we can't deal with them, I I think one of the best things we can do for our health is understand and learn how to work with our emotions.
1: Well, they're exhausting when we fight them as well. Um, The Buddhists say, don't they, that you should welcome every emotion because it's all information. It's telling you stuff. And nothing's permanent, so that's the other thing. You know that these emotions will pass. But I often say to people, imagine that you lived a life only with positive emotions. Yeah. How on earth would you know that you're happy? Because you'd have nothing to measure it against. And, um, and I remember my daughter was little, she's, I think she was about um, eight or nine years old, and I wouldn't do something for her. And she said, mum, it's your job to make me happy. <laughs> and I smiled at her. This is one of my wittier moments. I'm not often this quick. And I said, do you know what, love? It's not my job to make you happy. It's my job to give you the skills to cope when you're not. That's my job. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really hope I've instilled that in her and in my foster children because it's not a divine right to be happy and content all the time. It's actually life is much more exciting if you are able to experience the whole range of emotions and know what they mean for you. You know, so if I'm feeling a bit anxious about something, my first port of call will be curiosity. In fact, about all my emotions, really, exactly it's same. Curious. You know, oh, what's made me anxious? What, what am I facing? What am I coming up to? Or, for example, if I get preoccupied with something, um, and it's particularly true working in prisons, that maybe a particular case would stick with you or a particular thing somebody had said or um, the way someone had looked at you, which might have been threatening. Um, and just work out what that means for you and to be able to say well of course i'm bound to feel that way why wouldn't i this yeah. is this emotion is not alien this emotion is actually really helpful because it's telling me something mm-hmm. and and that is so freeing to be able to view your all your feelings that way and happiness and joy and success and achievement in exactly the same way you know to do you know the Rudyard kipling poem if there's a lovely lovely sent them. Um, part of that that says if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters just the same yeah beautiful and yeah it's lovely isn't it there's so much wisdom already there that we just need to draw on
0: (laughs) and I think that leads really neatly to your work in resilience because I think that word and the the understanding of that has got a very bad rap in recent years. So, can you tell us about it and how, what's a more helpful way to look at what it is and what it isn't?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think resilience, as it's generally perceived, and language is so important. I mean, even when we talk about mental health, what people automatically think is mental ill health. Mm-hmm. So, we prefer to use the term mind health because that's much more neutral. Mm-hmm. The term resilience has come to be to depict this idea of strength, psychological strength, and actually. N- never collapsing under pressure resilient people never yield you know they're strong and of course for most people the converse is strong is weak so then it gets all tangled up in judgment the word resilience so um, for us at Petros when we talk about resilience we think about all the skills you need to thrive um, sometimes those skills are the ability to say no to taking on more things. Sometimes it's knowing when you need to stop and rest. Sometimes it's knowing when you do actually need to soldier on because that's the best thing to do. So for, for us, really, it's about an awareness, I suppose, of your battery level. I really, really like that, Maria, the sense that, um, you know, how much energy have I got for this particular thing. And if I slog myself to get it done, you know if my boss puts an extra piece of work on my desk and I know it's gonna break me, what is the resilient response to that, the adaptive response? And the adaptive response is to say to your boss, I appreciate this really needs doing, however, I am at my capacity. So could we sit down and renegotiate other deadlines? For me, that's resilience. It's not just about taking that on and then collapsing in a heap later because because you couldn't manage that there's a fantastic parable which I'm sure a lot of people remember when I mention it and it's about the oak tree and the reeds by the river and the oak tree is standing tall and strong and mocking the reeds and saying oh you just bend and flex with whatever's going on around you you're so weak and useless Um, I'm so strong and powerful I never yield and then there's a hurricane (laughs) <laughs> and yes. The oak tree gets blown down and the reeds are still just gently swaying. So it is about that flexibility, about that insight, about that knowing about what's adaptive for you. And it's different for everybody. You know, so some people can just take more load because maybe they've got more skills or more experience or more energy. It's certainly not about a comparison about who's weakest and who's strongest. That's just ridiculous.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I think that leads some... Into the research you did about what teachers find most stressful and, and challenging for them, could you share some of your insights from that research?
1: Yes, I, I I worked with a colleague in the education department at the University of York, and we just were looking at what, what was the most demanding or what teachers reported as the most stressful things for them in the workplace. And the overriding result was um, low-level disruptive behaviour by kids in the classroom. Mm -hmm. And I think there are a number of reasons for that. I mean, obviously, when kids aren't disruptive, that's lovely. Although, having said that, that sometimes the quietest and most withdrawn children may be the ones most in need of attention, but they don't Mm -hmm. get it. Mm -hmm. When when kids are really, really disruptive, there's usually a policy of some sort or another member of staff to refer to. But that low-level disruption teachers described as finding really, really exhausting. And the, the thing that really surprised me not knowing as much about education is how little training teachers get in managing or understanding that type of behaviour from children because the assumption always is they're just naughty. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: whereas actually, when you begin, when especially when you know a bit about resilience, um, often that behaviour isn't naughty. It's a signal. It's an indicator of something underlying that's problematic. But teachers often don't have either the training, the time, I mean, frankly, I don't know how, you know, teachers are, are under so much pressure, I think, at the moment, and that's from an outside perspective, not not an informed one, it's just from what I see, um, that it must be phenomenally frustrating when kids are mucking around in the classroom. I was one of them, actually. Were you? Yeah.
0: <laughs> and so, but, and, but you do work now, Jo, with helping children with those difficult and challenging behaviours, what would you advise a teacher listening to this? It's going, I know, I know, it's the, you know, it's so hard to deal with this low level yeah. disruption. What would you advise them to do? Um,
1: if you've got any capacity, have a look at the work of Ross Green. Um, that's Green with an E on the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, he He's written a number of books around a uh, philosophy really about challenging and proactive solutions with challenging children one of his books is called lost at school and it really is about the kids we lose and it's those kids who do um, you know create real problems and are really challenging in the classroom his philosophy um, is that kids do well if they can not if they want to if we come from the angle of kids do well if they want to then our go-to methods are to try and motivate them to do well or to punish them when they don't. And if you imagine um, that you can't do well, then being rewarded or punished isn't going to work. So the philosophy that kids do well if they can is underpinned by the fact that when kids aren't doing well, it's often because they lack the skills to do well. And it's fascinating because when I was disruptive at school, it was in maths, and I used to sit in the back of, of the class and whistle. My poor maths teacher, such a lovely man, probably characterologically slightly anxious. And I think I probably made it a million times. My mum got called up to the school. It all got sorted out. But the point was, I didn't understand what we were doing and I felt useless. Exactly. And so I was disruptive, not because I was naughty or I wanted. I would love to have done well in maths. I would love to have done well, but I couldn't because my brain didn't work that way and it ended up in disruption. So the the premise that kids do well if they can means that we can stop and think about what skills is the child lacking that um, that we can help them with that will give them the opportunities to do well. So it's a very different philosophy. Um, Because doing well is always preferable to doing badly for all of us. I mean, every single person who listens to this, it's the question to ask yourself is do I want to do well? Mm. And I I can't think that anyone is going to say, Nah, I don't care. Mm. Because if we don't care, there's probably a reason why we can't do well. And one of the ways I explain it um, to to colleagues and to parents particularly is like we all accept that if a child has dyslexia, for example, the child will never likely get 100 on a spelling test and no amount of motivation or punishment is going to help that child be able to spell well because it's a difficulty that they have and there are strategies and things that can really help and improve that but it doesn't mean that they're ever going to be expert spellers and we're very accepting of that so we say okay so what can we do what strategies can we introduce what can we do to help Um, When children have more emotional um, or psychological difficulties, imagine that we apply the same approach to those kids. So a child is being disruptive in class and it's not because they don't want to do well. It's because they lack impulse control skills, perhaps don't have the ability to take perspective of their, um, you know, other kids in the class so they don't understand the disruption they're causing to everyone perhaps they are still developing emotional regulation skills you know and we know for all of us that our brains are continuing to develop especially those executive function skills like well into our mid-20s so we're gonna have kids in primary school and secondary school who are still developing those skills and for all sorts of reasons may be struggling it may be trauma at home it may be literally an issue of wiring like perhaps it is with dyslexia it may be there could be all sorts of reasons for it but if our premise and our philosophy is curiosity about why that child isn't in a position to succeed it actually makes it so much easier for us yeah Um, and I came across this because my own daughter was a phenomenally challenging um, three to eight year old She used to have these explosive temper tantrums, which is how I came to Ross Green's work, completely by accident, picked up a book called The Explosive Child, read the first page, and there was my daughter explained. It was was just extraordinary. So I read the book, applied the methodology, and then loved it so much I went and trained and became an accredited practitioner because it just resonated so well and if when my daughter was misbehaving i told her off or said i was she couldn't watch the telly or you know couldn't go out and play with her friends it just made matters worse because there was no way she she had the skills to do what i was asking her to do whereas if i was curious so for example she needed to do something quickly because we were in a hurry mm. and for her one of her lagging skills was change making transitions from one thing to another so rather than getting cross and angry with her we develop new strategies to say in half an hour, this is what we're gonna need to do. And I'll give you a you know 10 minute warning and a five minute
0: countdown.
1: And what are your concerns about making this transition? And she might say, well, I won't be able to finish my drawing. So I'd be able to say to her, well, okay, I, I hear that concern. And my concern is we won't get to the dentist on time. Um, so I wonder what we can do to resolve this problem. Mm. And then she would come up with solutions um some of which were really good some of which weren't but but ideally the child comes up with a solution to the problem and um and she would say well maybe I could I could do it as soon as we get home would that be okay and I and if it was fine I say, brilliant lovely Mm -hmm. solution let's do that or if I said but when we get home we've got to do this I wonder if there's another way we can resolve Mm -hmm. this but you just keep working at it so it's collaborative it's proactive and it's solution-based And it's it's fabulous. And once you've got the hang of it, it's really easy to use.
0: And do you find that that's as applicable to teachers Mm. given given the as you as you were describing they're they're very busy classes, especially with large class Mm. sizes? How would you advise them using those those strategies within the class? I
1: mean, in the in the ideal world, they are proactive rather than reactive. So you know, if you know you've got a couple of children in your class who react in a particular way at a particular time, perhaps they have difficulty um, getting their things out on the desk ready for the lesson, or perhaps they have difficulty packing up in time to get to the next lesson. Mm-hmm. You know, when you've noticed this, if the what the process advises is that you say, you know, I noticed you have difficulty packing your things up at the end of the class. What's up? Mm-hmm. And you just ask. And once once you've got this in your head as a kind of philosophy, as a mindset, it can become just part of your practice. So, you know, if if one of my foster kids or even my daughter at 23, and thinking if you're a head teacher listening to this, if you've got a teacher who is struggling with a particular thing, you can apply exactly the same thing. Although Ross's work is aimed at kids, it's also fantastic as a manager to help understand perhaps why a member of staff isn't performing at the level that you think they should be is you know I noticed this what's up and then listen 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 don't think that you know why that's the other thing one of the hard things about the approach is thinking having a theory about why something is happening you have to drop all your own theories because if you work on your own theory and you're wrong you're going to come up with a wrong solution so listening is absolutely key yeah
0: Wonderful, gosh, and it's so practical, so practical. If your maths teacher had asked you why you were whistling and what your challenges are, because I think I, I in fact, did a talk about this to some teachers this week about how school can be Mm traumatising. And if maths for you, if you hadn't got the foundations right, then you're just building on such a shaky foundation that it can be traumatising. So to help you understand why you're whistling that seems so disruptive or disrespectful, Mm -hmm. actually, Joe. Let's go back. What what's troubling you? And I and you know I'm aware. I do understand the time pressures that the people yes. are experiencing. But just taking a little bit of time could unleash or help unravel a problem that a child is really. It can it could help them flourish.
1: Do you know what? It's just you saying that, and I absolutely hear. And I could hear people saying, "We've got no time for this." But you know, fundamental a fundamental the fundamental human need is to be seen and to be heard. Yeah. And, and I think even if my teacher couldn't have come up with a solution, if his approach, rather than to punish me, which I completely get. And Dr. Phillips, if you're still around and listening, I am so, so sorry. <laughs> um, poor man. Um, but if somebody had been able to say, look, I noticed you're having difficulty when we do quadratic equations or whatever it was, you know, what's up? And I say, look, I really don't understand it. And I feel stupid. I might not have been able to articulate it like that at sort of 13, but um I probably could have said, I just don't get it. And it's a waste of time. I might have been angry because I'd been embarrassed Mm -hmm. So you know, expect some hostility, but it's usually that kind of thing is underlying embarrassment and shame, Mm -hmm. which are horrible emotions to have to to deal with. Um, I think even just to have been seen and heard, imagine as the teacher, you're the one who actually gets to the root of the problem. Mm -hmm. Because you know, I can guarantee you, the kids you're telling off and punishing, you continue to tell off and punish. So telling them off and punishing them isn't working. So we need to find another way. Mm. And this is, is a, and an evidence-based way as well, because it's been very, very well researched. It takes a little bit of time to get the hang of. But once you've got it as your philosophy, then it's brilliant. However, what I would say is it's really hard to do when you yourself are exhausted, a bit overwhelmed. Feel like you've got too much to do. Have your head in what's coming up next week rather than in the present moment or got your head in how everything went wrong last week rather than in the present moment. So you, it's really essential that the individual themselves is in a good place.
0: And I think that leads really neatly to your, your thoughts around stress and mm. what's happening as you describe it as the global pandemic Um, tell us (laughs) tell us what you mean by that and I couldn't agree more and and the word contagion in there as well so I'd love to hear your thoughts Uh,
1: well the the thing about stress is it is phenomenally contagious yeah you know you could be as calm as anything and then walk into a room where three people are stressed and suddenly you can feel your heart rate go up and go my god what's going on in here what's happening um so actually we we have the potential to lead stress-free lives. And I know when I say that, people look at me as if I'm absolutely bonkers, Um, but we know that it's possible because we know there is evidence. So uh, one of the things that that we um, deliver to people to help them flourish and thrive at work is a training called The Challenge of Change. And it's an interesting name. It was written by Dr. Derek Roger, who happened to be my PhD supervisor. And I'm lucky enough to hold the European license to deliver the training. And it's, um, it's essentially, it's, it's actually quite Buddhist in its approach, but it's dead practical. Mm. There are four principles that underlie it. One is that stress is never a good thing. And then you generally get some resistance to that. And people will say, but surely stress is necessary. It's inevitable. It's what makes us perform. So going back to this idea of language being so important, when you ask people what to say, okay, so tell me what does it feel like to be stressed? And they'll go anxious, angry, irritable, withdrawn, um, cross, not sleeping, feeling sick, and go, hmm, what's good about that then? <laughs> Why is that necessary? How is that helping you perform? Um, so we make a very clear distinction between stress and pressure. Yeah. Um, pressure we are under all of the time, all of us, every single one of us, Um We define it as the demand to perform. So right now... You know, there's some pressure on me to do an interview. There's pressure on you to be listening and thinking of questions. So we're under pressure, but that's not stress. That's great. You know, it's exciting, it's exhilarating, it's fun. It enhances performance. Yes, I can feel my heart rate up a little bit higher than usual, but that's great. It's not anxiety or stress. Because if it was, I I'd be out the door, not talking to you. So Mm -hmm. so that's the first principle. Stress is never a good thing. Mm. The second one, which is quite tricky for people to grasp is there's no such thing as a stressful event only a stressful response
0: exactly
1: we do need to make a really really important distinction around post-traumatic stress so big events when you're in your head if you're listening to this thinking well how could you possibly say that um you know somebody holding you at knife point or being in a car accident is not stressful those are incidents that could potentially trigger post-trauma stress so We're not talking about this. We're talking about day to day events like having a pile of marking or the Ofsted inspector sitting in your classroom or um, a kid being a pain at the back of the room. We're talking about the day to day things. And in this training, the view is that these are just events. What makes them stressful is what we tell ourselves about them. It's our narrative. It's our story about that and you know it's going about the wisdom of the ages Shakespeare knew this because he said there's no such thing as good nor bad but thinking makes it so exactly. now the power of this is that who's in control of your thinking mm-hmm. you so I mean that is it's phenomenally liberating to realize that when stress is occurring because you're telling yourself a horror story about something oh okay well I think Do you know what I'm going to change the script It doesn't have to be a horror story. Yes, I'm stuck in traffic and my flight's leaving in an hour and I'm going to miss it. In the total order of things, is that going to be the end of the world as we know it? No, it isn't. But you can guarantee if I'm sitting in the car getting stressed, everyone else is going to be in the car getting stressed too. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean the pressure isn't on. Mm -hmm. Yes, obviously the pressure's really high, but we don't have to turn that into stress with the right skills. Then the other principle is that Uh, all stress will lead to is a possibly shorter definitely miserable life so we establish that stress is miserable it's horrible we know from copious amounts of research that stress is related to ill health and death actually Mm -hmm. Um, it's only a possibly shorter life because the biggest predictor of our well-being is our genetics So if you've got really good genes and you get stressed, then you just have a long, miserable life. So (laughs) it's even more important to not get stressed. And then lifestyle is the second biggest predictor. But the third biggest predictor of how long we'll live is cortisol. And that's what we produce in excess when we get stressed. And in excess, it's a toxin. So the power here is knowing that thinking can cause you to get stress, Mm -hmm. but that also tells us that if we can use our mind well, we can think ourselves happy, we can think ourselves calm, we can think ourselves powerful, we can get feelings of um, being successful. Not saying we will be successful, but we get we can generate those feelings if we know how to manage our minds And then the final one, final principle is stress is a choice. But to make the choice, you need to understand
0: the steps to
1: take to make that choice. Yeah.
0: I can hear people yelling at us from here. <laughs> saying you don't understand what it's like for me, but I I completely agree with all of them. And it's taken me uh, many 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 years and many hours of sitting on a chair meditating to to get to these points as well. And but I I think we're we're getting to the point. I think in our education around this stuff that we can cut to the chase a lot more quickly. Are you finding that?
1: I am. I think people's attitudes towards psychological well-being have really improved really changed um I in my private sort of therapeutic work I'm far more likely now to see a category of people who would never have even talked about emotion and I'm mostly sort of older males Mm -hmm. who historically have not been allowed to experience emotion because emotion is considered rather than rather than being considered human emotion is considered feminine and I'm quoting somebody whose name I've got, so I'm really sorry that's not my original thought but I loved it yeah. this idea that emotions are thought of as feminine rather than as human is utterly ridiculous and has done men a massive disservice okay. which is one of the reasons men die earlier than women partly yeah not, not the total reason but because men are not encouraged to to recognize acknowledge, and express their feelings
0: which is mad And so much then is internalized, and that is literally cortisol. If there's fury burning in there that you're unable to express or any other emotion, of course, that is a physical, there's a biochemical response to that that is extraordinarily damaging over time. We could talk all day, but I want, before we start to wrap up, Joe, I want to ask you a question about genes because before we came on here, we were talking about epigenetics and it's it's an area that we both acknowledge we're not expert in, but both very interested in. And the idea that we can affect our genetic expression, if not our genes themselves, we can definitely affect our genetic expression and upregulate certain healthy uh, genetic expression and downregulate others. I, because I think many people feel like they're a victim to their genes, but I think there is actually by by the by the other things that we've talked about, we can impact our genetic expression. Yeah. Is there anything you'd like to add to that point about genetics? Yeah. And genes
1: are just fascinating, aren't they? And there's some research which which would suggest that about a third of individuals are born naturally resilient and that would be a genetic inheritance. And and I'm sure actually educators would be really interested in this. It's the Hawaii study is the one to look for, which is the one that identified that it was a longitudinal cohort study. It followed up babies born, I believe, in the 50s or 60s who were born into all those sort of circumstances that would suggest they were likely to end up in trouble. So poverty, alcoholism, uh, criminality, mental ill health. And when these people followed up at sort of the ages of 30 or 40, about a third of them were really thriving. This is against all the odds. The other two thirds have pretty much ended up where I predicted. Mm. And when the researchers look back at the records of the um the thriving group they found that they were babies as babies they were very engaging very babbling they were able to secure the care of a consistent reliable caregiver not necessarily a parent but maybe an aunt or a grandparent um and they and they thrived and the researchers concluded there must be something genetic around the temperament of these yeah, because babies, because you can't learn that, you can't learn how to engage someone as a two-week-old baby, so the conclusion was that it was genetic, so that's very interesting, the The, the other two-thirds, if we're going to get resilient, we have to learn it, but it is teachable, it's trainable, which is fantastic. Mm. The, the epigenetics is so interesting, so we look at, we can look at resilience as a kind of cocktail, where genetics would be the, the sort of base ingredient, if you like, and Some research has suggested, and it came from um, the the work I've read, came from men who were prisoners of war in the Second World War and following their offspring. So the, the children that these had. And it seemed as if there was some slight change in the gene that made their offspring more susceptible to traumatic responses to adverse events that wasn't present in other members of the family who hadn't been through that trauma. Now, psychologists have an obsession with the negative. So of course, they're always going to be looking at when things go wrong. And what we should really be looking at as well is when things go right. And how can we influence the the development, perhaps they have babies that are born into difficult circumstances, perhaps if they are removed from if they are I'm saying this from a foster carer perspective I guess Mm. and having looked after kids who've been phenomenally traumatized um if we can get that early enough it may be that there will eventually be an influence on genetic um development Mm. generations
0: well there's been some very good research done on the power of meditation Mm. on epigenetics Mm. and that learning the skills of mindfulness and meditation can change our genetic expression so there's some very exciting work happening in this field that um, is encouraging and inspiring.
1: Well I was just going to say it's when you think about learning there's that lovely research wasn't there that was done with London taxi drivers who Mm. have bigger a bigger hippocampus they have bigger memories so they, they literally influenced the structure of their brain by their learning. Yeah. And how that is manifest and passed on is a fascinating subject and one we've only just been able to begin to explore, I guess, because of the technology. But you're right,
0: it's fascinating what we can do. And, Jo, I, I do have to just quickly ask, how do you thrive in a high-risk job? Because I know most of the people that yeah. are listening to yeah. this would be, would be feeling under quite intense pressure and probably experiencing stress at the moment. I'm sure.
1: Um, I think it's a bit of a threefold responsibility, actually. Mm. Um, I think we need to start with ourselves because we are what we influence most. So learning, training, um, talking, writing. How do we make sure that we are in the in the optimal position? I mean, imagine if you're an Olympic athlete, you would train and get ready for your performance. So how do you train and get ready yourself for your um, your role? So there's a personal duty of care. There is also, there is an organisational duty of care, and that's very important. It's enshrined in law under the Health and Safety Executive. It's really interesting that just in the news today was an open letter to BrewDog. I don't know if you saw that, about the toxic work culture. Mm-hmm. Um, so BrewDog, this phenomenally successful brewery that I think started in 2007, But the workers have written an open letter about the toxic culture and work environment because of the drive and the push and the blame culture. Interestingly, and this is the same in teaching as it is in prisons, as it is in the police. Quite often what people say is that organisational issues cause them more demand and pressure than operational ones. So, for example, and I I absolutely know this from personal experience as well. Um, I'm just trying to think which story to tell. I mean, I could could tell one from prison. I'll tell two very quickly. I don't know how much time we've got. Mm -hmm. Um, I worked with an offender who self-injured and he self-injured quite badly. I was going to be away for a couple of weeks and we had a plan in place. But when I got back... He said, I've, I've injured again, and he showed me what he'd done, and it was horrible, absolutely horrible. So it was really quite traumatic. And he said, if you tell anyone, I'm going to kill myself. Mm. Um, so that's an operational issue. This is part of the job. Of course, the first thing I did was go and tell my boss because that was my professional obligation. But my boss's response was just horrendous at that time. He just shrugged his shoulders, went, mm. oh, well. Um, so I'm left with all sorts of thoughts, feelings, fury at my boss, anxiety and worry about the, the prisoner. It was just horrible. I got picked up by another senior um, member of staff in my department who took me under his wing and said, right, this is what we're going to do. So it was such a you could see that organisationally. Yes. Um, it was a horrible response. I've, I've got a, a member of my family who works at, um, in an A&E department, got assaulted by a drunk teenager on duty one night. Her boss came down the next morning. Um, my family member thought the boss was going to inquire about her health having been assaulted. And the first thing her boss said was, um, oh, I heard about the assault last night. Bad luck. Could you feel the shift on Tuesday? <laughs> <laughs> and just like, oh. So organizationally, there's a lot of work to be done to develop compassion, presence of mind, um, you know, for managers to have the appropriate. And about 20% of managers are actually trained in people skills. This is an organisational responsibility, not a manager responsibility, but it's ridiculous, actually. Mm-hmm. It's infuriating. Mm-hmm. So people get promoted on technical competence, but then don't get the training. They need to be good managers. Yes. And, and for them, that's horrendous because then they may don't feel competent to do their job either. Mm-hmm. So, organizationally training our managers properly, having informed and compassionate, robust, and well bounded leadership, um, the ability to say no to things. Um, I find it extraordinary how, how um, we fall asleep to the pressures that we're under. That, you know, because somebody said, we've got this target to meet, we have to meet it. And the target becomes an end in itself. And we don't stop and think, why is this target in place? How are we going to achieve it? Um, I had this experience myself when I went back into the prison service and we had a target for a set number of offenders to get through a treatment programme. But we didn't have the right number of offenders who meet, met the criteria for the treatment programme. And When I said, well, look, we're not going to meet that target because we haven't got the right type of offenders here. Um, everyone, oh, you can't say that, we're going to get into serious trouble, we're going to lose money. And I remember saying, well, we don't need the money because we can't treat them. <laughs> <So> <laughs> we and, and we're not going to be able to meet the target. So, you know, the people can get cross and upset about it or we can renegotiate the target. But at that point, I was feeling very bold. You know, I'd come back in to to a big institution having... Been out of it for a while, so you see things a bit more clearly. You have a different kind of clarity. So I would encourage, I think, everybody to come into work the next day as if it's the first day you started there. Come in with a complete fresh set of eyes, and have a look at the practices and the things that are going on, and what what of those make sense and what don't. And with those practices that don't make sense, they need challenging. Yeah, you know, if you've got ridiculous targets that they're impossible to meet, challenge them. What's the very worst thing that can happen? And someone might say, well, I might get the sack. Well, would you want to work in a place where they're reducing, you know, asking you to do things that are not doable? Yeah. You know, so we we need to, in fact, the first step to stress-free living is to be awake, is to not sleep, walk through life. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> waking up is really important.
0: Oh, my gosh, yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Joe, we could we could definitely talk all day, but it's time to wrap up. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with Joe Clark thank today. Thank <laughs> you so much. Jo's website is petros.org.uk and you can connect with Joe through her lovely PA, Laura, at petros.org.uk. Joe, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. It's been a joy.
1: It's been an absolute pleasure, and I hope everyone, you know, finds a way to thrive
0: thanks so much for listening. If you'd like to access tools and support to help you manage daily school pressures, stresses or anxiety, head to our website, asutewellbeing.com. If you enjoyed the podcast, hit the subscribe button in your podcast app. And if you feel inspired, please rate and review it and share it with your friends.